Keep those Bibles open and turn with me now to the New Testament, Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. After about 20 weeks in Paul's letter to his disciple Titus, we're moving into a new sermon series that we have entitled, Applying God's Word to Life. And so for the next number of weeks, you know, other than breaking for Holy Week that's quickly approaching, and then our normal summertime looking at different psalms, we are going to be looking at different issues that Christians face in their daily life. How to cope with death, how to deal with shame or addictive habits, how to restore relationships and forgive, how to fight against anger and anxiety, how to have an assurance of our salvation, what is the Lord doing in the midst of our sickness, how are we content with the will of God in our life, what are we to do when we are battling doubt and unbelief, what are we to do when we have a fear of others deep within our hearts, different things Like that, we know the pressures of the Christian life, and we know that many days it does not feel as if we are flourishing under God's care, but that we are barely making it through. Well, I'm here to tell you during the first sermon of this series that God's Word is sufficient to speak to every single one of those issues. And so this morning, I want to come from Romans chapter 15, verses 4 through 6, as we set a foundation for our new sermon series, Applying God's Word. In all of these situations, in all of these circumstances, in all of these emotions and feelings, we're setting a foundation of the sufficiency of the Word of God, which the Apostle Paul speaks of here. In Romans chapter 15, again looking at verses 4 through 6. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to look specifically there at verse 4, because what's being established here is whatever was written in former days, meaning the Word of God, was written for our instruction that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Well, when Beth and I were checking into the hospital uh, to have Brooks almost seven years ago now, even though that seems almost impossible that it's been seven years ago, I remember talking with my mom, and she's here so she can confirm this story. I was talking to my mom and I said, Mom, when you show up to the hospital in the morning, because it's game time in the morning, we're going to start inducing overnight, it's game time in the morning, when you get there, 
you take off Nurse Mary hat and you put on Mimi Mary hat. If you don't know, my mom's been delivering babies in Dillon for almost longer than I've been alive, and so I wanted to make sure that she wasn't in the room doing nursely things, but doing Mimi things. I wanted compassion. I wanted joy. I, I wanted, you know, jokes and just her presence. I didn't want mom staring at the heart monitor. I didn't want mom trying to move Beth around in the bed. I didn't want mom questioning the nurse's motives or, or the doctor's intentions, anything like that. I wanted her to be me, me, Mary. And I kept that position until I noticed that my mom, with a worried face, began to look at Brooks's heart monitor. And I thought to myself, now would be a good time for mom to turn into Nurse Mary. Because I can see on her face that something is not going exactly as it should be. Um, and of course, first time in the delivery room, I'm a nervous wreck. Beth's a nervous wreck. And I'm thinking about this terrible advice I gave my mom. Who's the only person in this room with any sort of experience about what's going on? Well, it's Mary. And so Mimi Mary needed to become Nurse Mary. Uh, and, and all things went well, uh, thank the Lord, with Brooks's delivery. But I, I've been thinking about that. been thinking about that terrible advice that I gave my mother uh, when it came time uh, to have Brooks. That unfair advice that I gave my mother. Because what I did not realize is being a nurse with that knowledge of the delivery room is ingrained within my mother's character. It's ingrained within her as a Mimi, as a mother, as a nurse, as a person. Those things are now, that knowledge now is ingrained in her. And so what I found was that the compassion and the, the joy that I wanted out of Mimi Mary actually became that much more joyful and compassionate when I just simply sat back and let my mom be who she wanted to be, who she actually was. And oftentimes when we approach things like anxiety and doubt and unbelief and anger and dealing with things like death and grief, when we begin to think about those daily hardships and circumstances and emotions with life, we begin to want separate mindsets. We begin to think, well, how would this philosophical, sociological book recommend that I deal with a, a tedious, a laborsome relationship, a fragile relationship? What, what, what would the, the psychologist say what, what I need to do to deal with my anxiety and my depression and my anger and my doubt, my unbelief. What, 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 would, what would all of these experts, quote-unquote, say when it comes to all of these different circumstances and situations in my life? And I'm not speaking against, let me go ahead and put this out first and foremost. I'm not speaking against the common graces of doctors and nurses and medications, all of those things are given to us by the gracious providence of our Lord. 
And we often pray, and we need to pray, for the common graces of wisdom for our doctors and effectiveness towards medicines and things like that. But what we need to really understand is that when we deal with certain situations, circumstances, emotions with life, our Bible has something to say about each and every one of those emotions, those circumstances, those feelings, those situations. Our Bible is sufficient. And so rather than being a Christian who deals with anxiety saying, you know what, my anxiety is part of my worldly life and my walk with Jesus is a part of my spiritual life. The Bible actually says, no, those two things go hand in hand perfectly together. That your relationship with Christ and how He has revealed Himself in His Word speaks to the way that we deal with anxiety. Speaks to the way that we deal with shame or fragile relationships. Speaks to how we deal with death and grief and hardships. Everything that we experience in this life culminates itself when we proclaim that we are a Bible-believing Christian. That's what I'm trying to say. Just as I realized after a season of, of thinking through that terrible advice I gave my mother, separate yourself from your knowledge of being a nurse, but not realizing that the full character of my mother exists parallel with her knowledge. So it is with the Christian. If we are Bible-believing Christians, we must proclaim that our knowledge of God's Word and the revelation of God's Word is sufficient for our daily living. All of our doctrine, yes, but also all of our daily living. You'll notice right in that verse I highlighted, verse 4, that Paul speaks of the instruction that was given to us in the Word of God. And he does not apply it in this verse to doctrine, does he? He applies it to the daily Christian life. He says that the written instruction of the Word of God is going to produce in you an endurance and an encouragement. Now in the midst of those valleys, of doubt and unbelief, in the midst of those hardships of anxiety, depression, anger, frustration, in, in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, what do we need the most? We need endurance and we need encouragement. In all of these hardships that we find ourselves in when we're navigating troublesome marriages or broken relationships, when we are holding grudges that we ought to forgive, what do we need? We need a Word of God that builds up in us an endurance and an encouragement. Yes, it needs to instruct us, but it needs to apply to drive our daily living so that we might faithfully keep in step with the Spirit, so that we might faithfully keep in step with Christ Jesus our Lord. And so as Bible-believing Christians who deal with these real-life circumstances, pains, emotions, we, we need to be a people who say that the Scriptures contain for me promises, principles, precepts, 
wisdom, and that is the all-sufficient resource for matters of life and godliness. That the scriptures, that they are sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. That the scriptures will teach us how to obey and glorify God regardless of the life situation that you might find yourself in. Because here it is that in our Bibles, everything that God has spoken to us confronts our very existence. From Genesis to Revelation, we have the creator-creation distinction. That God is the creator and we're the creation. That He has a right to rule our lives. That He knows best how this world is to operate. Therefore, we should listen and obey. But He also declares to us from Genesis to Revelation that He condescends to His people graciously, mercifully, and He does not leave us in the dark. He does not leave us in the dark, but He gives us a lamp into our feet and a light into our path which is the Scriptures. You know, I was, I was thinking through the sufficiency of the Scriptures, and I was thinking about the book of Proverbs. I, I, I'm not sure exactly how my mind got to the book of Proverbs as I was thinking about the sufficiency of Scripture. But I began to think about how the book of Proverbs compares the wise man to the foolish man. And bear with me for a second. Maybe this will be helpful. It compares the wise man to the foolish man. And it says things like, the foolish man sees falsehood, but he considers it truth. And the foolish man looks at truth, and he sees falsehood. Or the foolish man looks at bad, and he sees good. Or looks at good and sees bad. Uh, A fool ignores God and inserts himself into God's position, and a fool rebels against God's wise and loving commandments and writes his own moral code. A fool thinks that he can live independently from his Creator, and he will then think that he is designed to desire what he desires and to do what he wants to do. But then the proverb says that actually this is a deadly mindset. The foolish mindset is one that will lead to death. And so God in His grace and in His mercy does not turn His back on the fool. But it says in Proverbs chapter 1 that wisdom calls in the streets and says, walk in my ways. And wisdom is personified in the person of Christ as He is revealed to us in the Word. And so when we think about the foolish ways in which we live, the foolish dichotomies in which we create between our worldly life and our heavenly life, no, we're citizens of the kingdom of Christ and He has given to us a revealed Word. He has given to us a special revelation to teach us all things in the matters of doctrine and life, what we believe and how that applies to our daily living. And so we need to really allow the Word of God to come alongside of us when there are times of trouble. 
You know, one of the things that was so heartbreaking to me many years ago now, but I offered to do some counseling uh, with a community member, not even a member of this church, and they were going through a a hard issue, and I said, listen here, I, I would be more than happy to meet with you, to talk with you, to share some wisdom with you, Uh, No matter how long it might take, we can meet every week, we can meet every other week, once a month, whatever it might be, uh, to to really come alongside of you in this way, uh, I would be willing to do it. And so we we sit down for our first counseling session uh, 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 meeting, and and I have my Bible in my lap, and he begins to tell me kind of the full story, and and so I begin to open my Bible, and I, I, I flip over to a certain text, and I can't remember the text that I was reading, but I said, let me read this to you, and I began to read it. And he said, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't come here to hear the Bible read. I came here for you to fix my problem. And I thought, well, number one, brother, the Word of God is going to fix your problem. (laughs) Because this is a spiritual issue in which you're facing but, but also understand that I believe, and this is what I said, I believe that the Scriptures are sufficient to speak to any issue that any Christian deals with in their life. And he says, I don't believe that. And so I ask you that question. Do you believe that the Scriptures are sufficient for everything in this life? Do do you believe that the Bible is truthful and reliable? That the Bible speaks to every situation that you might face? That the Bible is complete enough to answer some of the most difficult questions of, of life? Because what we're often tempted to do is to go to extra biblical sources first because we don't believe that our Bibles are sufficient. Paul talks about this in Colossians 2. You don't have to flip over to there, but in verse 8, Colossians 2, verse 8, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Where does your hope lie in the midst of hardship? In the midst of your deepest emotions? In the midst of your hardest days? Where does your hope lie? In Colossians 2, verse 8 says that our hope must lie not in any sort of philosophy or any sort of human tradition or any sort of elemental spirit of the world. It must find itself rooted, anchored in Christ. And it's so hard to do that, I understand. It's so hard to do that, especially in the culture that we live in, because the culture presents before us ideas, models, philosophies that help us, or they they claim to help us understand life and living. And these arguments and these models and these philosophies, they're so pervasive and they're also so persuasive. They're pervasive because they find themselves in everything. They find themselves in everything. To understand relationships, they 
promote critical theories, to, to understand hardships, pain, and sin. They, they present philosophies or models to, to uh, from everything that we could ever even consider confronting in our life. There is a worldly model that is pervasive. It's in our television shows. It's in our academic world. It's in our social media. It's even seeped into our religious activities as, as churches. It's in the air we breathe, we might say. But that's not the greatest problem to all these human models and philosophies. The greatest problem is that they're so persuasive. Because human models, human philosophies, these human traditions, they, they all have a subjective relative truth. Because they all seem to be rooted in experience. I think you know what I'm, I'm speaking of here. I hope you do at least. When, when, when you're trying to get sold something like a medication or, or, or any sort of book, what, what is the first thing, a self-help book, what is the first thing they begin to do? They, they put this... They put this woman or this man on the television screen and they talk about how this book has changed their life. This medication has changed their life. I'm not overweight anymore. I don't deal with anger anymore. I don't have anxiety anymore. Whatever the problem might be. And it's persuasive because it's rooted in that one individual's truth. And then at the very end, it'll say very quickly or in the smallest of letters, you know, uh, not only side effects being an issue, but results may vary. Meaning what? You might not get the same result as that one lady or that one man. Because it's relative truth. It's all experience. It's all emotion. But beloved, when we have for us as as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 15, 4, that we have written for us an instruction that gives us endurance and encouragement. We have something that is always true for every single reader and every single believer. Because God is true. And we have something good and authoritative because God is good and full of authority. Again, I'm not speaking against the common graces of doctors and nurses and psychiatrists and, 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 and medications and, and, and different things like that. I, I, I trust the wisdom of my doctor. I, I trust the effectiveness of medications, but where is our hope rooted? First and foremost. Because the medicine's effectiveness might wear off. And as great as my doctor is, he is a mere fallible man. And I know his heart. And I know that he wishes that there was no sickness, pain, or medications needed. I, I know these things. So where is my hope anchored to? My hope is anchored to the fully authoritative, inerrant, perfect, never-changing Word of God. And that is where it must be. Because truth, in the midst of hardships, pains, in the midst of anxieties, in the midst of 
frustrations and anger, in the midst of grief and death, the only thing that we can cling to is real, everlasting truth. And that is what is found within the Word of God. The Word of God does not change depending on context. The Word of God does not change depending on circumstance. The, the Word of God doesn't change between readers. No, what we have from Genesis to Revelation is a special revelation that is given to all believers. And it says the same exact thing to each and every one of us. And, and an absolute truth is something that we can cling to as Christians that the world does not have. I, I was looking at different uh, Barna research statistics this week. And, and this latest national survey conducted two surveys. And it was one amongst adults and one amongst teenagers. And it was simply the question, do you believe that there is anything that is morally absolute, or is there something that is absolutely true? And in adults, meaning 18 and older, only 64% believed that there was an absolute moral truth. 64%. But then in teenagers, in teenagers, that, that number went down and 83% said that there was no such thing as an absolute truth. 83%. So I think, I'm not very good at math, I don't have to do it very often, but I think that means only 17% of people from 12 to 18 says that there is anything in this life that is true and always true. Well, our Bibles, brothers and sisters, are not relative. Our Bibles are always true. David Wells, an author who writes on absolute truth and the Word of God, he says that truth is now, a, truth is now simply a matter of etiquette. It has no authority, no sense of rightness, because it no longer is anchored in anything absolute. If it persuades, it does so only because our experience has given it its persuasive power, but tomorrow our experience might be different. What he's saying here is the Word of God changes or is relative towards each and every one of our experiences. And if that was true, if David Wells was right, obviously he's an unbeliever. But if David Wells was right, we would have no hope in the midst of our hardest of circumstances. But because David Wells is wrong, we have a written instruction that produces within us an endurance and produces within us an encouragement to face the day ahead. This is what Peter, the Apostle Peter, writes in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. He says if you entrust yourself, this is Peter's argument, if you're entrusting yourself 
and your salvation, your greatest need to the gospel as it's revealed in the word, why would you not turn all things over to him? Why would you not let the scripture speak in every, in every want and in every desire and every circumstance and in every trouble? Because it's through the word of God that we've been granted wisdom and knowledge of all things that what did Peter say pertain to life and godliness and so we need to acknowledge that the scripture tells us that it is sufficient that everything that I need to know about my salvation and everything that I need to know about my life is found within these words and it's the only book that is inspired by God and by His command it was written, and by His voice He speaks into every situation. It stands alone, doesn't it? It needs nothing else to explain it, but everything necessary for proper belief about God and our salvation, everything necessary to teach us how to live, even in the deepest of valleys, is found between Genesis and Revelation. The agenda is set by God and He speaks from Genesis to Revelation. In closing, I want to think through what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3. Because if we're thinking through this foundation that is the Word of God, the framework that is the Word of God to address things like addictive behaviors and, 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 and adultery and, and anger and, and suffering and grief and doubt, if we're going to say that God's Word proves to be sufficient for all of these things, what is the proof? Where does God's Word say that it will do, that it will speak in each and every one of those situations? And I cannot think of anything better than 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is the promise of the Scriptures. That the Scriptures, think about that, that text, that the Scriptures are first breathed out by God. That these are God's words to us. And it teaches us. It teaches us not only doctrine, but it teaches us about life itself. That the man of God may be complete, it says. And the, and the man of God might be corrected where correction is needed. Rebuked where rebuking is needed. Trained up where training is needed. Also that we might walk in the paths of righteousness. The purpose of the Word of God is to teach us, is to correct us, is to rebuke us so that we might be equipped for every good work. How can a man keep his way pure, the psalmist writes? By guarding it according to the Word of God. And so it's the Word of God that gives us the sure anchor of our hope in the midst of affliction 
It speaks to us, not the counsel of man, but the counsel of God. It eliminates all subjective thought and gives us an absolute truth. It doesn't allow us to become arrogant and to say that I have it all figured out and I can do this my own way, but it tells us, it commands us, it rebukes us, and it says, no, don't do it in your own ways. Do it in God's ways so that you might be prepared for every good work. Psalm 19, 7 through 11, and this is how we're going to close. Listen to the psalmist. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are to be more desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. By your word is your servant warned, and by your word they will be brought to great reward. Well, thanks be to God for his all-sufficient and never-erring word. And may we allow our lives to be guided by it. Let me pray. And then we'll sing together as we close. Father in heaven, we do come thankful for your word and thankful that you have spoken to us sufficiently in it. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be a people of the book, that we would know, Lord, that your, your word to us does not speak to just doctrine, just salvation, but it also speaks to us about daily Christian living. And so as we explore these things in the next number of weeks, we pray pray that we would find our hope anchored in the scriptures that were written for our endurance and our encouragement. We pray, Lord, that we would find ourselves searching out in the scriptures for answers of life's hardest questions, and that we would be a thankful people, a thankful people that you have given us a complete work. You have not left us as fools, but you have gave us a word to make us wise. And so let us treasure it more than the finest of gold. And let us find it sweeter than the honey of the honeycomb. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.